This is the Mark Stucheski Podcast. Ron Adner is a professor of strategy and entrepreneurship at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. He is the author of The Wide Lens, What Successful Innovators See That Others Miss, and the recently released book, Winning the Right Game, How to Disrupt, Defend, and Deliver in a Changing World. Ron, welcome to the show. Well, Mark, thanks for having me. I am excited to talk to you about because when you have a book title, How to Defend, Disrupt, and Deliver in a Changing World, our world is changing. Like it used to change by the year, then it was changing by the half year, then by the year, then by the week, then by the day. Now it's almost as if the world is changing, as if we can go out and look at a change. And I would argue, and tell me if I'm off base here, that if we are not in the game, we're not in the game. Yeah, you know, I think it's it, it's even like it's it's one level beyond that, right? Which is if you turn your head and look in a different direction, you're seeing a different kind of change today. Mm. And that's really the heart of what this book is about, right? So like if you take the main title, Winning the Right Game, it's supposed to evoke two things simultaneously. The first is that it's no longer just about winning. Like, I don't know if you remember, but... You know, when GE was the world's most important company Mm -hmm. and Jack Welch was the world's most successful CEO, right? Jack Welch wrote a book called Winning. Yep. And it was perfect for the time because it really was like, basically, this is how I run GE. You want to be a company within our portfolio. You've got to win. What does that mean? It means you need to be number one or number two in your industry. Okay. How do I do that? You either have lower cost, higher quality, or both. Great. So the advice winning actually meant something. Today, to tell a company, to tell tell a leadership team to win is almost meaningless because, you know, the, the notion of an industry has kind of broken down, right? Like we used to have a car industry. And you look at that set of actors today, right? If you're just, you're Ford, you're Ford thinking about GM, you're, you're missing half of the picture. Right. And it's not just Tesla and electric cars. It's not just Tesla and charging stations. It's, you know, Uber that suddenly the taxi company thinks that they should be in charge of the electronic brains of the company. It's, you know, Google entering this space. The notion of industries has broken down. And in that same moment, the question of what it means to win changes. And winning the right game is supposed to evoke the notion that you could be winning, but winning the wrong game which is going to end up feeling a lot like losing. Mm. And it also is supposed to evoke the notion that there are multiple games being played on the same game board you're looking at at the same time. And that's why everything feels so chaotic. One of my favorite companies, I'm an Apple fanboy through and through. I bleed Apple, silver and white is I have watched them. My first phone was the iPhone 4S way back in the day, and they were all about the iPhone. Then they went to the iPad. Then they really boosted up their MacBook. Now they designed their own chips. Now they have the Apple Watch. Now they're getting the services. They're getting the Apple TV Plus with original programming. Is that what you mean about disrupting? They're they're looking at the market, and of course, Apple has a lot of deep pockets, as does Google. I think that's to their advantage, is it not? Well... Yes, and kind of. Okay. So the, you know, Apple in its early days, okay, in its, you know, early days of its resurrection is an exemplar of what it means to change the game, right? Basically, the question we're going to look at is how do you rethink strategy in this world where industry boundaries break down? 
So when Apple's revival, you know, when Jobs comes back in the 90s um, and introduces the iPod to resuscitate Apple, that's like an interesting product move. When he changes the game is when he moves from this music player market to the phone market, right? And the thing that made the iPhone so interesting was that, you know, we had diversified companies, right? We had companies like Sony making MP3 players and making phones, but those were separate companies and they were diversified into these things that looked like two very sensible markets in two different industries. And what the iPhone did was they collapsed the boundaries between those two things that after that happens, you're like, well, why would you ever do it separately? And Apple essentially becomes an ecosystem player when they move along this trajectory, which exactly as you say, kind of they move from the iPod to the iPhone. They then use their position with the iPhone in a very interesting way to reconfigure the relationship with the telephone operators, right? When they offered exclusivity in every country to a single operator, they were able to rest terms that no other handset provider had managed to, had asked for for 20 years, but were not able to get it. And then they, as you say, they moved from the iPhone to the iPad to the watch. So within that ecosystem of devices that let you manage your data in a mobile fashion, they've been incredible. Interesting is how relatively unsuccessful they have been when they try to get out of that ecosystem into other ecosystems, mobile payments, okay, trivial contribution, video. I got to tell you, Apple Plus, great content, not changing the game in any way. It's just more of the same. Um, publishing, education, you know, whatever rumors we hear about cars, right? Nothing. So what's interesting is that Apple is an example of a company that is really successful within one ecosystem. But I think because it falls into what I call the ecosystem trap has a hard time distinguishing between one ecosystem and another. And so it kind of presumes its leadership is going to be automatic. And by the way, it's not unique to Apple, right? Google has the exact same set of problems. When you make that much money in your core business, you can hide a lot of sin. Yeah. But objectively, they're really success successful in some things and systematically unsuccessful in others, right? And that, again, is... The, the, the clarion call for, wait, we need to think, even these companies to think about, need to think about strategy in any way. You know, it's interesting. A couple of things you said there um, about Apple TV plus. I, I was an early adopter of Apple TV plus and there's like four programs on there now. I think in the future, maybe 2023, 2024, you're going to see Apple TV plus surge ahead because if you look at Netflix and Hulu and, and, and HBO, they're all going out and get what? original programming. Apple's distinctive feature is there's only original programming on there. I think people are getting to the the connoisseur of television broad uh, viewing, if I if you will. And they're saying, I don't want to watch reruns over and over again, maybe once in a while, but I want to see new programming. So I don't think the Apple TV Plus is going to pay off for two or three years. I'm enjoying it right now. Everything's in 4K. It's great. Um, there's not, I don't like all the shows on there, but they've got some like Ted Lasso at won all kinds of awards. Coda won all kinds of awards. It, the battle is, I know they saw the money there and they wanted to jump in. They have a lot of pockets, so they can waste a lot of money. But I think you're not going to see the true value of Apple TV Plus for two or three years. So before I go on to my next question, what do you say about what I just said? Well, I, I, the, the thing I haven't seen... So can Apple TV Plus be successful in the subscription video model? Probably, 
right? Does Apple ever need to give up? No, because they have infinity money. (laughs) But what we're not seeing is how they're changing the game by being Apple and video streaming. Instead, it looks like one more rival in video streaming. And I'd say that's the key distinction, right? When I talk about disruption in a changing world, it's traditionally when we looked at kind of classic disruption, but it was people coming in with a different offer and adding competition. Ecosystem disruption is when somebody comes in and changes the nature of competition, right? When Apple moved into phones, they they changed the basis of competition in both MP3 players and handsets. When Apple has moved into video streaming, they're just adding competition in video streaming. And that's what I'm saying. They, they haven't really deployed an ecosystem strategy, but that's not to put down what they're doing within the, the service, but that service stays in the clean box that we identify yeah. everybody else playing in. I'm really interested to find out how this, uh, if you don't know, listener, Apple and Amazon are up to $200 million to get the rights to NFL Sunday ticket. Apple really, really wants that because that means uh, DirecTV is losing NFL Sunday ticket because they don't have $200 million. It's going to be really interesting to find out who gets it because these are two titans who have a lot of deep pockets and we're going to see what happens. But I think you're going to see all the sporting events come off of the ABC, NBC, CBS, TNTs. They're all going to go streaming. You just buy a package. You get it for the whole entire year. That's coming. And I think when it comes to sports streaming, which I think is kind of ironic, I'll tell you why, it's going to change the game to a certain point. Now, for me, COVID was one of the best things to ever happen in terms of my TV watching because I kind of like lost a lot of interest in watching sports programming. So I'm more productive now. And so I think they're coming out at this stuff with like, Oh yeah, we're going to give you an NFL Sunday ticket. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> it's like if you did it three years ago, I would have cared. So that's interesting. So I want to get to the Apple payment thing. So like I said, I'm all Apple. I love paying things with Apple Pay. They have proven, I've read articles on all the websites that Apple Pay is the most secure way to pay. Because if you're not familiar, when you use Apple Pay, whether you're on your phone or on your watch, it it scrambles your credit card and sends a one-time token. So the only way it could be hacked is if somebody is standing right next to you and in that nanosecond that you send the the code over to the cash register that someone gets and makes the purchase, which is nearly impossible. Now, having said that, it hasn't taken as much of the market as I thought it would because it is the most secure way to pay. You don't, it doesn't matter if you use a Visa, MasterCard, Discover, American Express, doesn't matter. It is secure way to pay. And I'm really surprised that and other people's technology, whether it's Google, Chase, doesn't matter. I'm really surprised they haven't taken the Apple model because people, I got victimized by, uh, I, I used the wireless tap with my debit card, the gas station. All of a sudden I started getting all these charges on my account from Coinbase. Now, I did get a new card. They refunded me all the money, but Apple Pay eliminates that. So do you think that's potentially the way Apple Pay works is potentially a game changer for the, well, the security of us? It's it's a great question. It's actually chapter five of this book, Winning the Right Game. The title is The Ecosystem Trap. And by the way, an ecosystem is, is what happens when you think about an ecosystem. Right? Ecosystem is how you collaborate with partners to create new value. An ecosystem is what I call it when you define that relationship always with yourself at the center. And when app, so Apple Pay is a great example of falling into and still being in, if you ask me, the ecosystem trap. 
We know mobile payments can make a huge difference. Okay. If you look at what's happening in Asia, like half of consumer payments are all run, more than half are run on the basis of phones. Hmm. When Apple Pay was launched in 2014, Tim Cook made the promise. This will fundamentally change how you pay forever. Okay, that's the expectation that was set. And that's why I'd say relative to that, boy, it's a total <laughs> disaster. I watched that keynote. You're 100% right. <laughs> so if you step back and you wonder like, well, so what happened? It's the issue is not the technology. As you say, the technology is spectacular. The issue is, can you get other players, other partners to want to play your game? Mm. And this is where, you know, as I lay out in this chapter, the disaster was Apple kind of presumed that, well, We've got these amazing phones. And by the way, everyone we're going to depend on, the banks, the telephone companies, especially the retailers, they already have apps on the app store. We're in charge there. Of course, they're going to think we're going to stay in charge here. But this is this is what happens when you, you can't distinguish the boundary between one value proposition and another. Right? If I'm Walmart, it's one thing for me to say, fine, I'll subject myself to your app store uh, screening as I'm creating an app to make it more convenient for my buyers to look at what I have in inventory. To have you be in charge of payments, that's a totally different relationship. Hmm. And what happens is Apple has the idea for mobile payments, as does Google. But long before them, the telephone companies are like, hey, mobile payments, we're the mobile part, right? They have their initiatives. The retailers are looking at this and they're like, we should be in charge of mobile payments because we'll have more information about our buyers. And by the way, we won't have to pay as much in credit card fees. So what you have is all these different participants trying to create their own versions of how to do mobile payments. And what's interesting is just because the retailer's version breaks down doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily follow Apple. Right, so the, the 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 ecosystem trap leads to a world where everybody thinks they're going to lead the ecosystem, right? And as you know, on a team, if everyone says they're the leader, <laughs> no one is the leader, right? Yeah. The leader's job, and this is this is actually a profound strategy insight: is the leader's job is not to be the one who wants to lead; it's to be the one who gets everybody else to say, "I prefer to follow." And this is what it means to create a strategy for aligning partners. And that, again, that's the heart of this notion of different parties on the same board thinking about that mobile payments game in different ways. And if you want to win, you have to find a way of bringing them together. And that's what, you know, that, well, that, that, that's what the work in both of these books is about. And this new one in particular. Do you feel overwhelmed and frustrated? Are you under a lot of stress? There's a better way. You only get one life, so why not feel peace and freedom and enjoy your life? You can. Find out more at 90daystobustingoverwhelm.com. Well, let me ask you this. Let me ask you to put your, your, the hat on that you could sit down with Tim Cook. You had a one-on-one 60-minute meeting with Tim Cook. He wouldn't have any distractions, and you would give him some suggestions because they're doing really well in the iPhone and the iPad and the Mac world. I mean, they've got that down pat. But if, if he said, hey, Ron, I'm Tim Cook here. I, we're having trouble with Apple payments. We're having trouble with Apple TV+. Plus. What what would you tell Tim? Because you're right. Apple TV Plus is just another in a plethora of you know serving options out there. What would you tell him a way maybe that he could pivot and maybe disrupt that market? 
So, I mean, look, the, the first part would be say, wow, you're doing amazing work, right? So let's not have any of this come off in the sense of, oh, you know, this is a stodgy company, right? And it's certainly not resting on its laurels. But what I would say is that there's a difference in mindset required between extending your advantage in an arena where you're already playing. This is where we think about great execution versus the kind of mindset as a leader that you need to have when you're moving into a new ecosystem, right? Actually, I talk about this is chapter six of the book, which is the difference between the traditional execution mindset and what I describe as an alignment mindset. And the point here, it's not that one of these. So as a, as a, as a strategy, as a strategy person, it's very unusual to talk about leadership right? Strategy people don't talk about leadership, not because we don't think leadership is important, because usually you don't have a lot of advice. It's like, you know, get better leaders if you can get. The big aha for me in, in, in studying this shift from industries to ecosystems is that in ecosystems, the, it's not about getting a better leader necessarily. It's you need a different leader, right? Like a faster runner doesn't help your swim team. When we move into these new settings, into these ecosystems where boundaries are being redrawn, where partnerships need to be reestablished, what you want is somebody who really knows how to think about coalition building. Someone who, in an industry, we celebrate the leaders who put their companies ahead of themselves. My company first, that's like the level five leader. That's incredible. In an ecosystem where you're trying to get other people to play with you, coming in and saying, my company first, is actually a very... You know, it's counterproductive to trying to get people on board. And so where I would say a lot of these companies that have succeeded in a first ecosystem move fail is it gets harder and harder to maintain that alignment mindset, hmm. right? In the beginning, it's, it's hard, but humility is easy when you have nothing, <laughs> right? It's only when yeah. you're successful that we find out is that like, you know, was that forced on you by circumstance? Or is this a part of your character? And that's what I think these large companies like Apple need to, to revisit and reestablish. If you were in the room and they were, this is in the very early days when they're originally talking about Apple TV plus, and they came to you and they said, Ron, you're, you, we really respect your opinion. Do you think we should go into the streaming service? What would you tell them? I would say there are two, 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 two different things, right? One is like the, well, I'll step back. Why do you need strategy, right? You need strategy to help you allocate scarce resources, right? Kind of the subtext of that is if resources aren't scarce, maybe you need, you can get away with less strategy, right? So like, if, you know, you're making a billion dollars a day in your sleep. You can waste a lot of money in a lot of places and people won't, won't hold you accountable. Um, but if you want to change the game, the question is, okay, you want to move into this space. What are you going to do differently there? that is based on what you're currently doing that is unique. So other than making Apple TV only available to people with Apple products, right? That's a closed, you know, that's the walled garden approach. It's not that creative. What can you do to take advantage of that? And to me, it's not, it's not so obvious, right? But, you know, that's why we would sit down and spend a lot of time on it. This is why their leaders get paid a lot of money. Right. These answers aren't obvious, but we can sense when there is an answer and when there isn't. Right. And, and, and the way they launched it to me, by the way, including, you know, they have, you know, I talk about 
Apple Pay and people say, oh, yes, but you know, they have this great credit card with Goldman Sachs. I'm like, you know what? Again, that's a me too product. They could be yeah. doing it really well, but it doesn't, it doesn't make, take any advantage of the unique position that Apple has, right? Which is why it's just adding competition rather than changing competition. That's a very good point because like I will never get the Apple credit card because you can only do everything on the iPhone. So if your iPhone dies, you can't go to applecreditcard.com and like check your account like you can with Capital One or Chase or JP Morgan. And I'm like, that feature alone is no way. And by the way, listener, if you're like, why is Mark always talking about Apple? If, if you all you hear is Apple, you're missing the point what Ron's talking about. This applies to Google, Microsoft, Uber, or anything. Now, speaking of Uber, I want to ask you a question. Are you familiar? You must be familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk. I'm I'm not sure I am. Okay. So Gary Vaynerchuk is like this Uber, Uber entrepreneur. I mean, he owns VaynerX, VaynerMedia, VaynerSports. He's out of New York City. He came over from Belarus. He's a really successful entrepreneur. And one of the things he talks about, I've heard him talk numerous times, is you know, he's, he's like you, he's like a disruptor. you got to be a disruptor in this, this day and age. And he goes, a lot of people blame, you know, like, for example, we were in Macy's when they were closing the stores here in one of our local malls and they were all mad. And it's like, it's not Amazon's fault that Macy's didn't, uh, you know, continue to innovate. Same with the taxi, you know, you have Lyft and Uber. It's not Uber and Lyft's fault that the, the, the taxi company, sat in their laurels or even airbnb these are people saying hey i got a better way marriott could have come up with an airbnb or you know any other hosts so let's talk about those innovators how they just almost like they became complacent and then here comes an uber a lyft an airbnb let's talk about talk about that all right so that's okay that's a great question and it um so which, which by the way so the title of the book winning the right game how to disrupt, defend, and deliver in a changing world. Defend is a key question here, right? So we can keep talking about, oh, Apple and Facebook and Amazon, and aren't they amazing? And you know what? If you're there, yeah, good for you. (laughs) But if you're in the 95% of the rest of the world, it's, you know, it's a little bit of like business pornography, but it doesn't help you. And especially if they're moving into your space. So I take that. So it's a very, very serious question that you're asking, um, and you know, serious enough that it's chapter two of this book that everybody should read. So chapter two is, is is entitled "Ecosystem Defense," and it's about the principles that you you can that you have to use to respond to an ecosystem offense. Right when one of these giants moves into your space, what do you do other than give up? And so I, I highlight three different cases that, that, you know, still remain fascinating to me. So Wayfair versus Amazon, right? Wayfair is, you know, an online seller of, of uh, furniture. And they start off as like, again, a disruptive company. They're competing with local mom and pop furniture retailers. And then in 2017, Amazon announces furniture. That's our new focus. Directly attacking Wayfair. How is Wayfair worth more today? Then, then, TomTom versus Google, right? TomTom was one of the original GPS players. And then phones disrupt the idea that you need to have your physical hardware. They happen to like have gotten lucky and bought, you know, this uh, tremendous mapping asset. Google was their number one customer 
It used to be TomTom's technology that powered Google Maps until one morning Google wakes up and says, guess what? We've created our own mapping algorithms. We have our own data. We're going to launch Google Maps. Um, And so not only are we not your number one customer, we are now going to be your number one rival and our price is zero. How is it that TomTom is still a billion dollar company? Right. And then the third case is Spotify versus Apple Music. Right. Spotify spent six years trying to figure out how to do streaming. And then just as things are beginning to come together, Apple announces our biggest launch ever. Exactly what Spotify does. We are going to launch Apple. How is Spotify not dead? And the answer in each one of these, right? So these are like unacknowledged miracles. The answer in each one of these, it's so it's not just that they weren't complacent. No one is complacent. It's that they responded, right? The way you respond to an ecosystem offense is with an ecosystem defense. And the Mm. kind of the catch line is, if you're doing it alone, you're doing it wrong. It's always going to come down to, if they're bringing a new constellation to the game, you have to create a defensive constellation in return, right? So Wayfair, what they end up doing is they create a whole new set of partnerships with their suppliers that upskill their suppliers, change the relationship, and allow Wayfair to focus on beyond just kind of giving you inventory and logistics, which was the thing that they had over the, you know, the corner store, but obviously is trivial in the face of what Amazon was bringing, right? You know, Wayfair has warehouses. Amazon has a, you know, a cargo airline fleet. What they were able to do was kind of focus on, so what does it mean to be a re- an online retailer in furniture particularly, and kind of really honed in on the, it's not just about selection, it's about being able to discover through this selection. But more than being able to discover what's available, it's helping their customers deliberate and make decisions about, well, what is it that I want? Right. And kind of working through this, what I, what I talk about is a value architecture approach is going to introduce in chapter one of this book. They, they, they highlight these new elements of their proposition that allow them to create new unique value in collaboration with partners. And that's how it's not that you're going to stop an Amazon from coming into your market, but it's how you create a space for productive and profitable coexistence. Right. So this notion of defense, what you can't do is just more of the same, but harder. I think that's what we saw with Macy's. And you can't confuse that the effort that needs to come into more of the same, but, but harder with an, with an ecosystem-based response, right? It's like the parallel to are you just adding competition versus changing competition? When an ecosystem disruptor comes into your space, your defense can't just be more of the same. I remember about a month ago, my wife and I bought a brand new 55-inch TV from Amazon, and it came in one of these Amazon freight trucks. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know you guys had this. He goes, yeah, how are we supposed to deliver the refrigerator and the tables? I'm like, wait, what? He goes, yeah, we sell all that stuff. I'm like, you do? So I pulled out my Amazon app. I had no idea they did furniture and appliances. I'm like, wow, this is mind-blowing from a company that started with books. (laughs) It started with books, and now they sell everything uh, except for human organs. And now with this 3D technology, they're probably going to sell that at some point in, you know, 10, 15 years down the road. Who knows? But it's just amazing. And I, I think you know, I'm going to get flagged for saying this because Spotify, if I say the C word, Spotify flags, even though they don't even listen to the episode and get the context. But two people went through COVID. There are people who stayed and watched the news. 
and they got mesmerized by what's going on. And there are people like me and probably you who just kept working every day. And now that this thing is waning, the people who are working during COVID and innovating and thinking how they can better serve people are way ahead of the people that watch CNN or whatever all day long. So it's the same thing you're talking about in your books, only at a real pandemic level. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because COVID itself is an interesting example of an ecosystem disruption, right? In the sense that it's a virus, it's supposed to be a healthcare thing. But very quickly, we realize that it's crossing those boundaries. It's a matter of health. It's a matter of, you know, trade, of international relations, of security, defense. And, and so the response to COVID, right, had to cross those different boundaries, right? In some ways, that's, you know, Operation Warp Speed, right? The vaccine initiative is a perfect example of how do you pull multiple levers simultaneously, like Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Defense, activate the private sector in different ways to give a response, right? Because if it was just stuck within but the usual silo, you know, we would still be holed up. So, yeah, I think it's a COVID kind of, it's, it's, it's a great demonstration of how you react to things at, at, at multiple levels. So I totally agree with you. And I will say that I'm excited for the future because I'll be 57 in June. And I was around when the big deal was when you were a senior, you got to go to the computer lab. Only seniors could go to computer lab. We work on an Apple II <laughs> and you couldn't do a lot. There was no internet. So I've seen this whole thing transpire over the last couple of years. Those of you younger listeners, the assistant internet thing, Zoom, podcasting, that's relatively new in the scheme of things. And I'm really excited to see what's coming next for coming next. For example, I'm a big fan of Snapchat, love Snapchat, mainly because it's not owned by the Mark Zuckerberg empire. And they've got these snap, uh, snap, snap goggles. I can't remember what they're called, snap lenses, but I wear glasses, so I can't wear them. Well, now they're going to be coming up with Google Glass and Apple's going to come up with their, their version of glass. And now you're going to be able to plug in, I believe, you're going to be able to plug in your prescription and you can wear these glasses and it'll, you, It'll like turn sunglasses. It'll change your prescription. I see that coming down and I'm excited for the future. Now on the opposite side, I have an aunt who's 85 years old. I love her to pieces. She struggles with technology. She wishes we can go back to the seventies. I'm like, no, I don't want to go backwards. I like where we're going. Yes. There's going to be some bumps along the road. And I'm sure my great grandchildren are going to like, you guys had a phone. You didn't have a chip in your head. I mean, they're going to think we're antiquated, but I, I'm one of these people. I'm excited about where technology is going, where, how companies that we don't even know exist right now are going to disrupt. I am reading Tony Robbins book, Life Force, and all these companies coming up with how you can do 3D, you know, 3D lungs and 3D livers. I think that is fascinating how these little startups are going to disrupt us in ways we can't even imagine today. Yeah, I think, look, it's a really, it's it's a confusing time and it's an exciting time, right? And depending on the day, it feels like one is more than the other, but they actually, they go together. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, what I would say is it's it's precisely because of that combination that we do we do need a new approach to strategy, right? Because yeah. well, what, you know, what happens most of the times, it feels like we're just kind of fumbling forward. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's okay. In some ways, it's okay for society, right? Like eventually good things happen. But if, you know, for the individual actors, for the people investing, 
you know, whether it's their money or their, you know, their, their, their effort, their time, like their, you know, their true human resource, more guidance, more clarity means you can be more effective in making those bets. Um, and yeah, I think it's incredibly, it's an incredibly exciting time to, to, so, to be involved in, in, in innovation and in value creation. So how long have you been a professor? Since 1998. I've been thinking about this stuff since, well, I started my PhD in 1993. So I've been thinking about this for a really long time. Wow. And so you're you know, like me, you got to see the internet explode or bloom, whatever word you want to use. When, if you wanted the phone in your car, you had to disconnect it from your wall in your house and put it in your car. You couldn't use it, but at least you have a phone car and the first cell phone was a brick. So you went through all that. I think I, when I look back of how far we've come, how quickly we've come, I just, I am ex- so excited about the future. So I am so excited you are on the show today. So tell us about your books. Tell us where we can find out more about you. Well, so as you said, kind of two two books that I think that you know that I wrote that I think are really worth reading if you're interested in this kind of conversation. Um, and and the the first chapter of both books is posted on my website on ronadner.com, a d n e r. Um, the first book was called The Wide Lens: What Successful Innovators See That Others Miss, and it was actually it was. Part of the inspiration was looking at, you know, when, when things were, were rising, kind of the internet was changing everything. There was this question of, well, things are look exciting, but we know a lot of things aren't working out. And the, and the question was why? So Wide Lens was all about how do you expand your aperture to look beyond your own technology and what you're trying to deliver in terms of execution to think about the other pieces that need to come together for your work to matter. So it was like, how do you rethink innovation in a world of ecosystem? Kind of created these two concepts of your co-innovation risk and your adoption chain risk. Like if you're doing something new, who else needs to innovate for your your innovation to matter? And besides getting your end consumer excited, who else needs to buy in? And this was kind of identifying the critical actors that were not on the critical path to your customers. That kind of created a whole new view on how to think about innovation. And then that book came out in 2012. And it led to this whole other set of questions, which was, ah, if this is how people are innovating, if this is how people are creating value, what does that mean for the way in which we need to think about competition? And that's where winning the right game from, winning the right game came from. It's how do you rethink strategy, like strategy with a big S in this world where the traditional industry boundaries are collapsing? And then both from an offense and a defense perspective, what are the new tools and the frameworks that you want to have in your mind? By the way, not just if you're Tim Cook, right? This is really, imp- if you're in the middle of a company, which is where most of us are, you can set strategy for the company, but you can set strategy for yourself and for your team, mm. right? And there is nothing less satisfying than being on a project that fails, be- not because of your fault, right? I mean, if things go wrong and you screwed it up, you that happens. But what's worse is you do a good job and other pieces aren't coming together. And if you're like, if I knew I was dependent on those guys, I never would have started. I would have taken my energy and put it somewhere else more productive. And so both of these books, you can read like as, you know, big company, top of the company. I mean, well, they're essential for, they're even more essential for startups than large companies because startups have less resource to burn through. But they're, it's essential for people in the organization as just the leaders, because if you're in the, if you're inside the engine, boy, there's no one looking out for you, right? They're all saying go in this direction, and you need some some compass for yourself to say, 
do I believe that direction or not? Like if I'm at Apple, hmm, maybe I don't want to fight to be on the Apple pay team, right? Maybe I want to save myself for, for something that, that can look more productive, like the watch. So if, so, you know, if, if these sorts of issues of strategy are interesting to, you know, to the listeners, so they can go to ronadner.com. There's a ton of resources there. You know, the books, obviously, you know, they're on Amazon, all these other purchase platforms, but, um, you know, I wrote them, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm a professor, right? Society pays me to try to think productively to make things more efficient and effective. So, you know, the reason I write these books is really to try to be helpful to the people doing the hard work. Um, and so I, I, I hope it's of interest to folks and I hope it's helpful. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I am even more excited to what's coming down the road today, tomorrow, next week, and 10 years down the road. So thank you for sharing your insights with us on the show today. No, it's great to be with you. Thanks, Mark. And before we go, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mark Stuchowski podcast. I know that there is an endless stream of options for you in this day and age, but you took the time to listen to the episode, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Don't forget to head on over to top5productivitytips.com and get my gift to you, my top five productivity tips. Remember, it's the number five in top5productivitytips.com. They will serve you well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We'll see you again real soon.